Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Impact of the Bible, with a message titled, The Impact of the Bible on Family. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I began yesterday by speaking about the impact of the Bible on culture as a whole, and and here I stress that the Bible lays a foundation for human dignity as no other document has. And furthermore, I stress that the Bible also lays a foundation for objectivity that truth can be known. That's because God is a God of truth, and in revealing truth, he has not deceived us. Of course, sin has entered into the world and has subverted all things. Yeah, of course, as finite human beings, we, unlike God, can't know all truth. But we know some things truly. And it's this foundation for knowing that's opened up a whole range of disciplines that include science and the observation of nature. I'm doing a strange, rather unusual series on the importance of the Bible I mean, normally when I'm speaking about the Bible, I, I've done that at other times. I've spoken about, you know, the inspiration of the Bible, the sufficiency of the Bible in determining what we believe, the authority of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, as well as the unity of the Bible and so forth. I've also spoken about the message of the Bible. That is, what's the overall theme of the Bible? What's the one story that it seeks to tell? I mean, each of these areas of study are fascinating and they lead to very interesting discoveries. But in this series, I've wanted to talk about the impact of the Bible and the impact that's felt on human civilizations as well as individual human beings. Of course, the Bible establishes a baseline. All human beings, without exception, are created in the image of God. And that alone means that all human beings have intrinsic worth. That is, our worth is not based on what we own or the power we exhibit, the influence we yield, nor the skills we have. Our worth is given to us by our Creator, and so whether poor or rich, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, all human beings are in the image of God. And I've argued that cultures that have this essential biblical influence are greatly advantaged over cultures that have never been taught this. And furthermore, when the teachings of the Bible are forgotten, the value of human life cheapens. I mean, think, for instance, the common belief in our cultures that we are, as as Andrew Claven aptly sums up, the modern belief that we're merely meat and a chemistry set, or that we're merely a product of random, purposeless chance. You know, in this world, the only value to our lives is the value that we subjectively give ourselves. And of course, in the wake of such thinking, human life is devalued. But today I want to build on that theme and take us to the impact of the Bible on the most foundation of all human institutions. I'm speaking about marriage and the family. So let's begin where the Bible begins. Let's do what the Bible does and connect the idea of being created in the image of God with being created as male and female. So here I'm reading Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So let's notice four important teachings in this passage, every one of them leading to the next. The first is the one we've already noticed, that we're created in the image of God. The second flows from that is that God has given us purpose. We're to have dominion over all the works of God's hands. That is, man as male and female has been given the task of ruling over the creation. Now, I know that's been criticized. I mean, some have argued that the reason for environmental degradation has been this very command. Rather than living in harmony with nature, well, they say the Bible teaches that human beings are the lords of nature and we're called upon to master it and bring it into submission rather than to respect it. So how do Bible readers respond to this criticism? Well, the response is to go back and read the biblical text and try to understand what it means to have dominion. So if we go to chapter 2, verse 15, we read the words, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The idea here is stewardship. A steward in an ancient world was someone who was charged with looking after an estate that didn't belong to the steward. It belonged to the owner. The steward was the caretaker who was charged with caring for the owner's property and doing what the owner wished him to do. See, the problem in the Bible is always the problem of sin. God created a world that required care. Nature needs an overseeing hand, and God made human beings to do his will in regards to the world that he has created. I'll say it again. The problem is sin. We're still in the image of God and have the power to govern nature. But the heart of sin is that it rejects God as the owner of all things. Sin imagines that we can be lords of the earth without answering to the property owner. And Jesus told a parable like that. Matthew 25, 14 begins this way. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Yeah, the property owner is coming back one day and will call us to account as to how we've managed his property. Very well, we're in the image of God. That was the first point. The second, being in the image of God, we have been entrusted with the care of the earth. Now comes the third point. God then created man not as male or as female, but as male and female. And as male, the man was to care for the earth. And then as female, the woman was to be the man's helper. The idea being that both the man and the woman bring something unique to their partnership. They're both in the image of God, but the two of them complement each other, adding something that the other couldn't do on his or her own. And if we go ahead to Genesis 2.24, we see the same theme now spelled out further. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is, God expects the man and the woman to form an institutional bond with each other, and that institution is called marriage. Now, look, I know that our culture, marriage is diminished. And before I go any further, let me speak about singleness, shall I? There are a number of reasons for singleness, but the phenomena of being single adult has been growing in the Western world. And the Bible does give provision for singleness. 1 Corinthians 7 makes it very clear that singleness can provide an opportunity to be more engaged in ministry and service than if you had been married. But in regard to singleness, 1 Corinthians 7.37 says that the single person must have his or her desire under control. And that's referring to sexual desire. 
So God provides marriage as the place for the expression of sexual desire. I'll say more about that in just a bit, but let's get back to the matter of marriage. Marriage is not just the first human institution. It's an institution established by God. Jesus spoke that way, Mark 10, 6-8. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Now it's true. Matthew records Jesus giving provision for divorce, but Jesus limits the reasons for divorce and also says, divorce is always sin. It's a hard heart that will not submit to God. Now, it must also be said that the sin might be completely on one person's part, but the principle is the same. Divorce is always the result of at least one person and sometimes both of them sinning. And the Bible makes it plain that it was one man with one woman, not one man with two or more women or one woman with two or more men. And furthermore, that this marriage is for life. That is, it is to be broken only by death. That it's a partnership designed to fulfill God's purpose for the human race. There's so much more in the Bible about marriage. Not only are the husband and wife partners together ruling and reigning over the world of God's creation, they are also to relate to one another according to God's design. Ephesians 5 tells husbands to love their wives. Wives are to respect their husbands. Furthermore, according to Hebrews 13, the marriage bed is to be kept pure and undefiled. That is, no sexual activity outside of this one man, one woman marriage. Song of Solomon also explains in great detail not just the love, but also the sexual intimacy that is to take place within marriage. See, cultures that are built on the biblical model uphold that model. Sex within marriage alone, romantic love and intimacy, and a common mission were thought to be the very purpose of marriage. Indeed, marriage, according to Ephesians 5, is a divine role play and it highlights the unity of Christ and His Church. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical to God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there are times when you may miss the radio program, So we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebiblecanada.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series both audio and video with Dr. John. But you can also learn how to subscribe for our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our mission is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is accessible to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In societies conscious of the Bible, marriage is thought to be sacrosanct. It's honored. Marriage is encouraged. Governments give tax breaks to the married. It was thought that marriage provided the foundation for the stable society. And all of this was grounded on biblical teaching. The Bible had a massive impact on how 
people ordered their lives. Indeed, people were encouraged to marry young, for the Bible taught that it was better to marry than to be consumed with lust. There's a story from my years as a pastor that I love to tell. I encountered a single woman who had a fiancé who had very painful genital herpes. Well, she had never connected with the Christian faith before, but, but she wanted to talk. She said, look, I, I know that everything in my life has brought me nothing but pain in terms of my sexuality. I wish I had had you to talk to long before I got into all these painful situations. She still wanted to talk. We talked about the Bible's command to remain a virgin until the wedding night for both men and women. And she looked at me sadly and said, I wish someone had explained that as a real possibility when I was younger. She said, if only I had known that was an option, I would have grabbed it. And then she went on. Can you imagine the sadness I would have avoided? It was an interesting conversation, of course. We did end up by talking about the marvelous grace of Jesus, his ability to restore and bring forgiveness and reconciliation with God, and even to use our own sin to work out his long-term eternal loving purposes. And yet, in the end, she repented of her sins and received Christ and his amazing grace. Now, The biblical view of marriage really does change the nature of a society. Sex is given a place and a role within a lifetime covenant of faithfulness. Societies where marital fidelity is considered to be the norm are those societies where stability is achieved. I know that marriage is fraught with difficulties, brought on by the entrance of sin into the world. Men can abuse women, refuse the teaching that men are to love their wives as themselves or that men's prayers would be hindered if they mistreat their wives. And furthermore, sometimes the man and the woman do not forsake all others to cling to each other. I have known cases where one member of a marriage is manipulated by his or her parents so that that one person refuses to leave father or mother and cling to their spouse. That also is sin. The Bible teaching puts marriage as the first and foremost relationship. No, not your buddies, your wife, not your girlfriends, your husband, not your parents, but the partner in your marriage. The marriage is the primary relationship. And that leads me to the fourth pillar of the teaching from Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Remember, we learned that the text begins by asserting that all human beings are in the image of God, and then second, that image bearers of God have a purpose. Human beings are stewards of God's creation. We are to rule over the creation after the manner that is pleasing to God. We rule on his behalf. And then third, in order to do that, God makes humankind into male and female. And yes, the Bible really does assert what biological science also teaches us that we're male or female. Now leads the fourth reality. God says to the man and the woman, be fruitful, multiply, have kids. You know, it's interesting that God could have made it possible to have children in any number of ways. But in his infinite wisdom, God elected that human beings would have children through a lifetime of love and intimacy. But the point I want to address is that the Bible values children. Psalm 127, three to five, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Indeed, think about how differently the Bible evaluates true wealth as opposed to how our contemporary society does. 
The Bible makes children a sign of your wealth. Contemporary society says, you know how expensive they are. And so speaking from the Bible's perspective, we might answer the question that so many young people ask. What's worth a lifetime? What goal shall I aim at? How will I find meaning in life? How can I live my life so that I don't end my years with a sigh? Of course, the beginning of those questions from the Bible is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But after that, we're invited to consider how to invest our lives. And so speaking to young people, anyone giving biblical advice would say, seek to find a godly spouse, get married, have kids. For what purpose? And here Genesis tells us, after commanding that we be fruitful and multiply, it says, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the works of God's hands. In other words, invest yourself in your children and teach them to obey God's commands to rule over this creation in a way that's pleasing to him. We might ask how to do that. Can consider every occupation that human beings have. One way to look at our work is to think of it in terms of the money that we make and the prestige that we have, along with the power we exhibit. But another way, the biblical way, is to look at it and think about the work that we do that glorifies God. Whether we're carpenters or doctors or nurses, whether we engineer buildings or fix plumbing inside of them, whether we produce food that feeds many or mine precious minerals that make modern life possible, It is possible to look at any work through the lens of ruling over the work of God's creation in such a way that God is honored and his image bearers are helped and beautified. You know, I've tried to give a biblical view of purpose in life as well as stressing the importance of family. The importance and dignity of children is stressed. Husbands and wives are called upon to relate to one another as Christ does to his church. And what impact would that kind of thinking have on culture? For one, the centrality of the family is felt over the centrality of the state. That is, we're not the children of the state. We're the children of a mother and a father, as well as our grandparents and great-grandparents and so forth. We're children of those who have walked before us, who loved us. Compare that view to the view of Marxism, where the state defines your identity. You know, that kind of an environment, the state rules mercilessly. In contrast, the family, if it's biblical, rules through the power of love and belonging. And furthermore, please notice how the early church brought the gospel to the world. You remember the Philippian jailer in the book of Acts? When he asked, what must I do to be saved? He was told, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, even though it was true that he himself must individually repent of his sins and throw himself onto the mercy of Jesus, he was not to think about this action outside also of thinking about his family. All indications show that the early church grew through what has been called household evangelism. It was not just individuals that needed Christ. The entire families out of which one drew one's identity also needed Christ. Again, contrast that view with the modern Western view of the lone individual who establishes identity individualistically. And also contrast that view with the view that it's the state that deserves our ultimate loyalty or that an individual is defined by his or her chosen subculture. Or think about the new belief structure that you're defined by your sexual orientation, an orientation that's often shaped by the wider cultural belief structures. See, in all of those cases, the family is left at the back of the line. And when that's so, individuals are easily manipulated 
for their left to stand on their own against the large social constructs. But it's the importance of family that puts a check on the power of the state. Yeah, the Bible does counsel us that we are to respect those in political offices and we are to pray for them. But the Bible also restricts the power of the state over certain affairs. It doesn't give it power over all of life. You see, in our culture, the one that's busy forgetting the Bible, parental roles are limited. Having children isn't prized at all. A young man or a young woman is not defined by the commitment of love that leads him or her to make a lifelong commitment of love and fidelity to a spouse, but rather they're defined by their jobs, by their accomplishments. You know, I've got a daughter who was then, you know, engaged to her husband. She showed up in her trade school class where she was. She was sprouting a new engagement ring. The professor saw it and he mocked her in the class. He said that she should rather live with the guy rather than get married so young. But when the Bible is taught, that doesn't occur. Marriage brings about cheers, not jeers. Family bands together to celebrate, and the next generation has not just found love, but has learned that love requires a lifetime of fidelity and faithfulness, in which that young couple links arms together and takes on a project worth the investment of a life to rule and reign under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Wow, the impact of such thinking has transformed entire nations. It has brought stability and joy where there might not have been it. That's just one of the impacts of the teaching of the Bible. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, Is it true to say that when it comes to family and the teachings of the Bible, that the Bible actually contradicts beliefs so prevalent in our daily culture? Yeah, it's, um, you know, culture is a strange phenomenon. It's always on the move and it's always shifting, whereas the biblical wisdom is solid, objective. It's the the never-changing Word of God, I should say. Um, so we, we do know that uh, when we were a society that at least took the Bible seriously, we thought differently about the relationship between men and women, about what it means to be sexual beings. And so, of course, today, it's uh, the, the gap between Bible uh, morality and what is considered the appropriate morality of the culture is just, it's just an increasingly widening gap. So that in the end, I think that those of us who are believers now look so different than the rest of the culture, and that is to the deficit of the culture. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Impact of the Bible, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada is approaching its fiscal year end, making June a financially critical month for the ministry. Over these past few years, Back to the Bible Canada has been committed to ensuring that in unpredictable times, you can rely on our Bible teaching and engagement resources to provide the comfort and guidance of God's Word. This year, to ensure we reach our goal, a few generous ministry friends who share our heart for Bible teaching, have offered to help us reach our year-end target of $409,000 by pledging to match every dollar you donate up to $100,000. This will double the impact of your gift. 
There is no better time to consider supporting this ministry than right now. We'd be so grateful for any gift you might choose to give. So for more information or to donate, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.